Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Laura here. Before we dive into today's episode, I just have a few quick announcements. First, today, we're relaunching the Unchained and Unconfirmed websites. Both podcasts have new logos and a more unified look. Plus, we've got a beautiful podcast player on every episode page. The website looks amazing. Definitely check it out. Go do it right now. Unchainedpodcast.com and unconfirmedpodcast.com will both get you to the right destination. Thanks to Zach Swinehart for doing such a great job, to Daniel Ness for helping to transition to the new site, and to the past guests for who also helped make it happen by sending in all their headshots. Second, with the new website, we are now able to offer one of the most requested features, transcripts. That means we have transcripts for every episode of Unchained going all the way back to the very first one. Woohoo! I know this material can sometimes be rather dense, so I hope that having a written version can help you understand this complex and nuanced technology. Additionally, as you'll hear in this week's episode, I'll be putting exclusive content on the website. For instance, this week, I didn't get to ask Eric and Dovey all my questions during the episode itself, so I'll be publishing their answers to those remaining questions on the website. Finally, I am launching a weekly newsletter. It will be a curated set of the week's top crypto news and links, along with a little summary to make sense of this fast-paced world. While you're browsing the new site, which again is at unchainedpodcast.com, be sure to sign up for the newsletter. The first edition drops this Friday. Don't forget, the URL is unchainedpodcast.com, where you can see the new logos, read transcripts of Unchained, and most importantly, sign up for my weekly newsletter. And now, on to this week's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you've been enjoying Unchained, pop into iTunes to give us a top rating or review that helps other listeners find the show. Within months, cryptocurrency anti-money laundering regulations go global. Are you ready? Avoid stiff penalties or blacklisting by deploying effective anti-money laundering tools for exchanges and crypto businesses, the same tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. Considering using digital securities as a way to grow in 2019? Tokensoft's trusted platform provides the security and compliance tools to leverage blockchain technology and enter new markets with confidence. Visit us at tokensoft.io or on Twitter at Tokensoft Inc. Do you have an idea for a blockchain app but are worried about the time and cost it will take to develop? The folks at Azure have you covered. The new Azure Blockchain Dev Kit is a free download that gives you the tools needed to get your first app running in less than 30 minutes. Learn more at aka.ms slash unchained or by following them on Twitter at MSFT Blockchain. The topic of today's episode is the crypto scene in Asia. How is it faring during the crypto winter? Here to discuss are Eric Meltzer and Dovey Wan, founding partners of Primitive Ventures. Welcome, Eric and Dovey. 
Hey, Laura. Thanks, Laura. It's great to be here. Before we dive into questions about Asia, and there is a lot to discuss there, let's quickly discuss your backgrounds. Can you each tell me how you got into crypto and came to start Primitive Ventures? Why don't we start with you, Dovey? Yeah. So I was born and raised uh, back in China and I like, moved to U.S. like to uh, pursue my master's degree at Carnegie Mellon University at the age of 20. So I worked at eBay for like four years uh, as a product manager and like move on to like traditional venture investment. Like back in venture, I've been doing like blockchain investment, fintech investment, AI investment, and like got into crypto when I was doing um, like blockchain investment. And I remember I met Merrick, uh, so I remember I met with Eric, um, like just during the Zcash time. So that was like back in early 2017. And like Eric and I, we were, uh, we were like both the community board elector for Zcash. And so like that's how we get to know each other and we hang out quite a lot. And like Eric became my like crypto buddy. And so we literally just like talk every day and like afterwards. And then so like we, so. Uh, because I do like venture investment, like there's a lot of like, like just a legacy problem. Like say for instance, it's very hard to maintain your, um, just like, asset liquidity and, and like, uh, basically I have to hop between both like traditional venture and like crypto. Like crypto is already 24 seven. And so it's pretty <laughs> tiring. And so like that's why me and Eric were thinking, like, what about we probably just like start our own thing. So, so I, I can be a full-time crypto. Um, so like, that's my background. And for your venture, you were at Danhua Ventures, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And, and just describe who they are. Oh yeah. So like, um, like Danhua Capital has to be, um, so like it has been a pretty like, uh, major Asian background venture from back in Silicon Valley. And, um, and, so I think at the top, uh, our AUM, so like the, uh, Denghua's like total, so like the total AUM was over, uh, like half a billion. And, um, so it is actually backed by some of the very top strategic money, uh, like Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, et cetera. Um, so like that's why it has been like a leading force of this like Asian investor, uh, so in the valley. And Eric, what about you? How did you get into crypto? And if you have anything to add about how you came to start Primitive Ventures? Yeah, so I uh, I went to college in China, actually, also. Um, I was at Peking University. Um, and I'm also Jewish. And so I guess those two things kind of conspired to make me really excited about Bitcoin. Um, and so in like 2013, <laughs> I was, I I was introduced to this... That. Yeah, let me elaborate. Okay. So, so here's, 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 here's the background there. Because I guess my interest in Bitcoin, I think, is a lot more political than a lot of investors. Um, ah. and, and what that comes from is, is uh, you know, as a Jew, I, I read historically about how when the Jews had been oppressed in various countries, really the first thing that happened, kind of the predecessor to a genocide, was uh, people's financial assets would be frozen. And so, like, every every Jew has some story about how their ancestors had to flee with basically just the clothes on their back. And so when I heard about this form of digital money that was completely outside of government control, I thought that was like an incredibly exciting thing, um, really from a, from a political perspective. I wasn't that interested in, in the tech. Um, and to this day, I really don't think the tech is, is something that new. It's kind of more of a recombination of existing interesting stuff. And then going to China kind of further reinforced that because China has, you know, these super strict capital controls. And so I had a bunch of Chinese friends that wanted to move money out of China. And they, they would have to, you know, find 20 friends that could each send $50,000 in order to move a million out of China. 
Um, and that also just drove home for me that like, it was kind of ludicrous to have our money in, in the control of a central government. Um, mm. And so that got me, both of those things kind of got me really into Bitcoin. But I didn't, I wasn't that interested in crypto as a whole. I kind of just thought Bitcoin was like this one-off really cool thing. Um, but the other coins that were around when I first got started, like if you actually, if you went and looked at coin market cap in 2013, um, they were almost all complete garbage. They were just you know, obvious scams. There was Mega Coin and Feather Coin, and you know all these ridiculous <laughs> things that have since died. And so I, I didn't, I didn't think of it as an industry by any means. Um, I just thought it was this kind of cool thing. And then way later, I mean, I, I bought some Bitcoin back then. I held on to Bitcoin. I would, I would like read Bitcoin talk obsessively, but I didn't. I didn't again, I didn't think of it as, a, as like a sector. And then in 2017, I, uh, I started seeing things that were actually interesting. And so like when Ethereum and, and Zcash and these other coins started coming out and the exchange infrastructure really started getting built out, it, it appeared to me that this was actually going to be a thing. And through kind of a crazy series of coincidences, I ended up joining an investment firm in China called INB that's uh, founded by this really interesting guy uh, named Li Xiaolai, who to this day is one of the biggest holders of Bitcoin. And so I worked with them for a while, became a partner there. Uh, and ran an early investment fund at, at, at INB. And that's how I met Dovey. So Dovey and I were doing very similar kind of early stage investment stuff. And uh, I think the two of us are similarly picky. If you look at like, you know, I think Dovey and I have more in common with like hardcore crypto skeptics that hate all crypto than we do with like crypto <laughs> ultra bulls. And that like, you know, 99% of the stuff they hate, we hate too. Uh, it's just that we think there's sort of a 1% kernel of things that are like the absolute truth and are super amazing. And so it was really refreshing to meet someone like that. And, and like Dovey said, we ended up just talking constantly uh, and we co-invested in a bunch of stuff. Uh, and at, at some point I was like, well, I mean, if we're going to be co-investing this often, we may as well just have a fund of our own. Uh, and so that's how Primitive got started. So the reason I wanted to have you guys both on the show is because I feel like you are both pretty steeped in the crypto world across regions. And the last time I did a show about Asia was actually quite a while ago. It was like a year and a half ago. So um, I was really curious to know kind of where things have been going over there. And so just in really broad strokes, why don't we just start with kind of like the big picture? How would you characterize the differences between crypto entrepreneurs and the crypto projects and teams in Asia versus the rest of the world? So... I mean, something that Davi and I think about a lot is that like, like crypto is inherently global, right? There's no sort of built-in restrictions in terms of where you can participate. And so as a fund, we look really globally. And what we found is that the stuff that we like in Asia and the stuff that we like in the U.S. is, is completely different. And so in China, uh, you know, a very high percentage, a distressingly high percentage of projects I think of as outright scams. Um, and if they're not scams, they're just really uninteresting stuff. But the, the sort of centralized infrastructure around crypto, so like the Binance, the Huobi, the OK Exchange, the Unity, these kind of guys, are, in my opinion, like an order of magnitude better than the U.S. counterparts. Um, and so if you compare like, you know, Binance to, not to pick on anyone, but like, you know, Poloniex or something, it's just the team is incredibly competent. Their, their execution ability is off the charts. And so what we found is that we do, we look, at, we look at and do a lot more like equity deals in China that are for kind of crypto-associated companies. And then we do a lot more actual cryptocurrency deals in the U.S. where I think there's kind of more sort of old school cypherpunk like uh, cryptographer talent. And yeah, I'm so and curious why. Oh, go ahead, Davi. 
Yeah, yeah, right. So, um, especially for like, um, just, uh, crypto entrepreneurs and like one thing we, uh, one thing like specific in, uh, China or just, uh, Asia in, so Asia in general is, um, so because we found like all these application, this essentialized application are really good to use there. And I think that's probably partially because of the whole fintech thing is pretty advanced, like back in, just like, uh, back in, just, uh, back in, China. Um, so here in the United States and people are still paying with a uh, placid and write out billions of like paper checks like, um, every year. Um, but like everything is cashless. Uh, so if you ever go to Beijing, Shanghai, just like people just, uh, use Alipay or like WeChat pay everywhere. Um, so I think decentralized, um, uh, centralized application or centralized fintech infrastructure is way more advanced there. So like that's why there's a lot of uh, talents and entrepreneurs and like and uh, this traditional fintech founder who are uh converted to like crypto founder. And so that's where we find like the true talents that belongs to that specific layer of uh, applications. Is that why you think that they differ in that way? We're kind of like the startups and the infrastructure, as you described it, is more advanced and interesting in China versus here. And then, but then also on the flip side, why do you think more of like the decentralized protocols and stuff are more, those projects are more interesting in the US? I think like if you're an entrepreneur who are building for like a centralized application, and so you have to be really good at user acquisition, uh, like uh, user acquisition in the sense of like at like a, a consumer level. And when it comes to, to like a protocol layer, um, when it, so when it comes to like a protocol layer like projects, and so like like the like the like the first set of like clients like quote unquote like clients are more like developers. So you are basically targeting two different groups of users out there and so it's a complete different scale. Um so I think like that's why that sets them apart like to so to a certain extent. Huh, there, there's something else that Davi brought up a while ago that I, I think we should mention, which is just uh you know if you're working in crypto, you're working on a technology that's fundamentally anti-government. And you're working on a technology that has a ton of you know regulatory risk. And so you kind of need to be someone that's extremely comfortable with being a pirate. And uh We've noticed there's more of those people uh, than you would expect in China. Despite that, there's, you know, there's kind of not the crypto firepower that we would want for like these protocol level projects. But in terms of like, you know, a CZ and Hui type of team like you have at Binance where, you know, they're they're just going to go ahead and do this thing. And and if it works, it's fine. And if it doesn't, you know, they'll live in Singapore or something. And we've actually, it's been, it's been slightly you know, a bummer for me because there's been definitely projects in the U S where they approach me with something that I think is really cool. And I'm like, well, but like you guys are U S citizens and you're under U S regulatory regime. And what you're trying to do is just not going to fly in the U S. Um, and so there's just, we can't fund this because like, it's not, it's not going to work in, in the States. Oh, you know, I thought you were going to go in the opposite direction with that statement. I thought that Dovey's point was that the FinTech firms had done well in Asia or China because, Oh, sorry. That is that because the fintechs had done well, that that's why these like startups, these exchanges had done well. Um, but that something decentralized is really different. And I thought where you were going with like being anti government was that people in the West are more used to doing that. And that's why they're, you know, more, I guess, developing more interesting decentralized protocols. But you see it the reverse. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, I think it's really nuanced. So like, 
the, the nuance that I, that I would try to try to explain is that like the Chinese infrastructure firms that are flourishing, they're doing so outside of China. So it's Chinese teams, but they're not dealing with Chinese regulatory risk because they don't have Chinese oh, right. fiat channels. And so it's kind of, there's some kind of interplay there. And then the other thing is, you know, the general, I think, sort of Chinese developer profile, I would say, is much more sort of authoritarian and, uh, and you know, unwilling to challenge authority. But then you get you get these these occasional teams, um, not to come back to Binance, but I think they're really amazing, uh, you know, and, and the other big exchanges in China as well, and a lot of the wallet projects where they're just, it's kind of, you know, whether you love them or hate them, it's, it's sort of like the Travis Kalanick Uber model where they're like, look, we, we made this thing that we know people like, um, and maybe the regulation doesn't fit yet, but like, we're just going to keep doing this and people are going to love it. And eventually the regulators will come around. And I think we've seen sort of less willingness to do that in the U.S. Yeah, I, I will urge people, if you haven't yet, to listen to my interview with CZ. I also think he's pretty amazing, but Binance is just like an incredible story. You you really need to listen to that podcast if you don't know the story of Binance. So one other thing that I was wondering, so now we, you know, we've discussed the difference in the entrepreneurs. Do you think that like investment in the two regions differ? Like, do you see that Chinese investors kind of prefer certain things versus uh, investors in the West? Um, I think like, uh, when it comes to specifically on Chinese investors or just, um, uh, just like firms that's based in like, uh, mainland China. And, um, I think, so we have to categorize them into something like, say, for instance, we have like pretty good friends out there, like, uh, NGC, like FBG and like a few others out there. And I think like their preferences are very much similar as like what we have. But I think there are probably like hundreds of like different other, like VC funds or like crypto funds out there. And, but like they're actually not even a fund. So they're just like, uh, simply like a syndicate. And so like that's what we have seen like in like 2017 and like early 2018. So like hundreds of like such funds like pop up and like many of them, they're like extremely short term. And so like the whole fund cycle is, so it's only one year. And like many of them are like just such like, pure, just a like, pump and dumpers. And so uh, most of them are just like trading centric. And so they will help you to do market making. So they will probably do, um, um, so they will like probably do like all this like, Ponzi design with you. And so like they're like most of them are like looking for just a short term return and just a short term liquidity. And I think like we have to categorize of those like not the legitimate funds out there. And then like some of those uh, like relatively so like just like some of those like good ones out there. And one thing I realized about the investor profile is um many of these like investors, so they don't have any just like product building experience. Like many of them are not working in like tech industry at all. And so some of them are former, you know, like amateur trader of like crypto. So buying Bitcoin early on and just like get rich overnight. And like many of them, so they would just like, like, so they will probably try to invest their existing crypto and then into something uh, they can just like keep the multiple going. And so like that's a very common mentality that I have seen in the whole Asian landscape. Wow. Like meaning they... So they form these sort of temporary groups, these short-term groups, and then they just, I mean, like the, these protocols or the, these tokens, or, you know, whatever the projects are, like they would take a while to build, but they're trying to get a profit within that year. Yeah. So it's like probably like a few weeks 
Oh my God. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would, I would add to that by saying that there's this kind of this shadow ecosystem of like extremely shady projects in China and extremely shady funds. And so you'll have these projects that are, in my opinion, just like pure garbage and they'll offer to their friends who are running these kind of like pseudo little mini funds, uh, these huge discounts, um, with some form of lockup. And then they play this kind of musical shares game where their token gets released. It gets, you know, they pay some listing fee, they get listed on some exchange. And then the, the funds that were in early all, you know, make two or three or whatever, 10 X, depending on what the, the situation is. Um, and then they just rinse and repeat. And so what happened is when, you know, during the massive bull run in, in 2017, they were able to do that pretty successfully. And then when the market turned much less bullish, they found themselves holding on to a bunch of, you know, just pure garbage tokens that were made by teams, in my opinion, really in bad faith. And so a lot of those funds, you know, because what Debbie mentioned, they have this extremely short time cycle. They're just, they're, they're screwed. I mean, they're in a lot of trouble because they're holding assets that have no inherent value. They have no one to sell them to. And their, their LPs, you know, want their money back in two or three months. Um, so I think we're going to see kind of just the way we've seen in mining and the way we've seen in projects, like when the market turns sour for a while, all of these kind of amateurs and scammers and everyone, you know, get washed out. And I think we're going to see a lot of washout of that kind of fund. Okay. Yeah. Let's hope. <laughs> um, one thing that I wanted to ask you was I've spoken to both of you before and I noticed that I've seen or heard you both call the advantage that Silicon Valley VCs used to have. Um, you've called it an unfair advantage. And and both of you said that you think that's changing now with crypto. So what do you think that advantage was before and how do you think crypto has changed that? So I think um, in the past, like the, the huge advantage, and I think this advantage still exists to some extent. And by the way, I mean, the reason we use the word unfair advantage is it's just almost like a term of art in startups where like if you're investing in a team, you, you want to ask them like what's the advantage that they have that no one else can access. And I think for Silicon Valley VCs, the big thing was just there was this huge network effect where if you're a Silicon Valley startup, everything you needed was in the Valley. Uh, like all your hiring was going to happen in the Valley. All of your future fundraising was going to happen on one, on one, you know, on Sand Hill Road, on like one street in Palo Alto. And so if you were a very well connected Silicon Valley VC, you could approach entrepreneurs and tell them, you know, we're well connected to all of your potential customers. We can help you hire. Your future fundraising is going to happen with people like us. Um, and then crypto came along and in crypto, the ecosystem is much more global. And so if you're a project, you have to care about like miners, which are mostly in China. You have to care about an exchange ecosystem that's truly global, but also has a very large China presence. You're, many, many of these crypto teams are hiring remotely uh, in Eastern Europe, in China, in Singapore, um, and in the US. And so if you're an old school, you know, Sand Hill Road VC, you're actually going to be at a pretty big disadvantage because when a crypto project approaches you, you really can't offer them very much. Um, and I think crypto projects are starting to wake up to that, where in 2016, 2017, a lot of these projects were really excited to get like, you know, the big name, brand name VCs on board as investors. And then they realized that like the value add being promised just wasn't being delivered uh, because these people just, they're not really in the right position. They're not connected to the right people. And you're starting to see a lot more, you know, specific crypto vehicles. Uh, like a fund that we like a lot is, is Paradigm. And so Paradigm was like Matt Huang uh, left Sequoia and uh, partnered with Fred Ursum and this, uh, this guy, Charlie Noyes to do a fund that's specifically going to be crypto focused and that will hopefully establish these connections. And so I think, you know, that's going to be a trend and, and that it is really just the global nature of the ecosystem that sort of eliminates that advantage that, that Valley VCs had. Yeah. And for yeah, people who don't know, Fred Ursum is the um, former co-founder of Coinbase who left in, I think, late 2016. Debbie, were you going to add something? 
Yeah, um, because I think the traditional venture business has been very regional, or at least that started as a very so, uh, or that started as a very regional business. Um, and like Silicon Valley has been the center of like, uh, so has been the center of uh, technology innovation over the past few decades, and like the whole ecosystem is complete, right? Because we have been saying that like the whole Bay Area or like the Silicon Valley has been a stack, like. Yeah, so for instance, in like south part of the Bay Area is the infrastructure, Cisco, Intel, NVIDIA. And so like uh, moving on to like the north of the Bay is San Francisco where like all the application is happening. And um, I think like, um, I think when it comes to like crypto, like everything is very, very scattered. And ever since the early days and China and like Korea has been like a major players in the crypto landscape, like the top exchanges were started and less and I think like most of them, they are, so they are still operating back in China. And like most of the biggest and mining operations are, um, so are also like run by Chinese. And there's also other thing I want to mention. So it's about the drive. And then like also it's about the desire for like social mobility. That's one thing that's very obvious in, um, South Korea. When it comes to like South Korea, like first of all, like South Korea has a very strict like capital control as well. And then like, because it has a very high demand and very, very low supply. And so like, that's how the kinship premium comes into exist. And then like also that, uh, so, and then like also that kimchi premium kick off like a wave of like crypto hype. So among the local Korean citizens. And then I think like the hype of crypto and token investment and then also like the very strong drive and desire for like social mobility and then because like there's like an illusion that you can be overnight millionaire, um, so back in Korea, so it, so that has become like a social phenomena. So both investing and like doing crypto startup has become both the Chinese and Korean version of also um, uh, uh, both the Chinese and Korean version of American dream. And so that's one thing that's probably lacking in Silicon Valley right now because um, like they so. I think most of the value entrepreneurs, so they're relatively philosophical and idealistic comparing with um, like Asian entrepreneur, like who are definitely more like practical. And then like the whole hype, so like the whole hype behind crypto has, so has like, so has propelled that. I wanted to ask you about, so actually before we move on, I did want to note for listeners who don't know what the kimchi premium is, that was um, this period, especially during 2017, when due to like restrictions on on where you could trade, demand in Korea drove the prices up. Sometimes, <laughs> I think to like 30 percent higher than they were on other exchanges. Is that roughly what it yeah. was? The peak, mm-hmm, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, which is just insane. You know, for coins like Bitcoin and Ethereum and stuff like that. So. Um, I, it's, th- does the kimchi premium even exist anymore? Um, so I think it's down to like less than 1% now because, um, uh, everything has be, um, more, um, on this like, equilibrium and because of like a uh, better liquidity. Okay. Yeah. I do know that I did hear some other <laughs> podcasts and other people, um, that are a little bit more trading oriented talk about how I think some people would like, try to talk to their friends and relatives in Korea to see if they could like take advantage of arbitrage opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I do not condone that behavior. Um, however, that 
uh, is I think what was going on back during those days. Um, but just out of curiosity, why do you think, because I, as far as I understand in general, I think there's just much higher trade volume in Asia than in the West. Why, why is that? So in general, like the trading volume, um, I think like trading volume because just like exchanges are there, right? Because like, uh, Korea has like three biggest exchanges out there so they can accept like fiat. And so like, that's why the fiat on ramp channel is like pretty sufficient there. And then, um, China before the ban, like, so just like before the ban last year, like most of the major exchanges can also accept RMB. So like that is like the fiat. And so like, that's why the fiat on ramp channel is very smooth. And like, even after the ban, like everything just like quickly move on to Alipay or WeChat Pay, uh, as the, uh, over the counters. Like, because a like, digital payment is already pretty advanced. And so as long as, so as long as like we can transfer money on WeChat and so I can have your address. And so we can actually do like just over the counter transaction using this peer to peer manner. I think like that's why probably like that's one of the reason why the trading volume is larger in general, but in Asia. Um, and then no, like, I, would, I would, but I, I feel would like add, that would, would make add it. To that. Okay. So I, I would add to that, that, uh, you know, when I first moved to China for college, I was at a cafe and I saw like this, you know, middle-aged uh, woman with her computer open and she had, what looked to me like a Bloomberg terminal open. I mean, it was this really advanced like trading interface and she was day trading Chinese stocks. And I was like, huh, that's like, you wouldn't really see that in the U.S. And then it turns out, like, in China, tons of people are really active and in some cases very skilled uh, day traders. And so there's a lot more, I think, just like amateur traders in China. I think that the structure of their their markets um, is a lot more retail focused, especially yeah. uh, with like the you know Chinese domestic stocks. And so you had this huge pool of people that were used to trading pretty speculative assets. And so when crypto came around, they were like, they were really into it. They, they traded it very heavily. Yeah, I think like there's, interesting. so there's also very, um, very, very unique like market structure like back in Asia. So if we comparing like the dot-com bubble and so, so comparing like, the dot-com bubble versus like the crypto bubble. And so there seems not too many investment bankers out there, like just as like, sell side, buy side agents. So here in United States or like Silicon Valley for specific for like crypto products, but like, there are tons of like such channel or just like selling agent back in Asia. And so in just in Korea, Japan, China, or like Thailand, just all over. And like people tend to have like crazy love into financial products. And so like those financial products are like either insurance or like high yield product or like shadow banking products. So there are so many of those just like uh, average and mom and pop. And so like they will all buy into that. And so like usually it can be like a shadow banking product, like which is not very, very common here in the US. And like many of like, those agents, so they're actually selling like crypto products comparing with this like regular financial or, or just like shadow banking products out there. And I think like that's one of this like, very unique like market thing back in China and like back in Asia in general. Hmm. One other thing that I was curious about, though, is if you were saying that a lot of OTC crypto trading is happening via WeChat and Alipay, those are surveilled platforms, right? So, you know, obviously there is this ban on Bitcoin exchanges and investing in ICOs. So could trading on those platforms or investing via those platforms, could that put people who use them at risk? So there's actually like a certain risk out there, like especially like the government 
they have been running all this um like monitoring, especially on uh, crypto transaction. Um, uh, but like if you are, I think if you're like careful enough and just like like the amount is like small enough, it's relatively hard to be caught. But I think there's definitely like risk exposed to um getting your banking account being freeze and stuff like that. And so like many of my OTC friends has been been through that before. But I think in general, like if you, so, if you're just like doing like consumer level and just a small amount, um, like peer to peer transaction, like it should be fine. Um, hmm. and yeah, then- I think I think that's I think that's accurate. I think also, um, the you know the actual the situation on the ground is that it's illegal in China to run a cryptocurrency exchange that has fiat, but it's actually not illegal for me to sell you some Bitcoin for RMB. Yep. Um, yep. if if like the two of us are just friends, and so that's. You know, it's unclear whether there, there might be some other kind of weird risks associated with that. I had a friend who did a pretty small OTC transaction and then ended up getting basically a police summons that said, we think you're involved with money laundering. And she went and it was fine. But I guess what happened is that like somewhere in the chain of either, I forget whether it was the Bitcoin transactions or the fiat transactions, some money that didn't have a good origin ended up in her account. Um, and they froze her account, oh, like wow. Debbie said. And it was kind of, it was a hassle. Um, and she ended up, it was fine. Like she didn't get in trouble or anything, but it was pretty scary. But yeah, but it, it's, it's just like a really weird, like as an American, the idea that a transaction that I'm doing on an app, that the government would have some insight into what I had done. Like that's a weird thing to me. Although well, I, I mean, guess that, that's of course, that's of course happening in the U.S. as well. Right, right, right. But I guess it's happening if you're using, I guess what I'm saying is because like a chat app, right? It's different from if you're using like a financial app. Well, but Um, I mean, in the US, the governments have full surveillance of every chat app as well, except for maybe Signal. uh, I think like when it comes to, so like, so if you and I like want to transact crypto and like the only thing we're like, the only thing we are going to communicate over like WeChat is probably just like a QR code. And I think like the surveillance and so they would definitely try to labor like those like crypto relevant conversation. Um, but when it comes to like small amount and so it's just fine. And then just like holding crypto is actually legal. So it is actually not illegal. So yeah. So like we don't know anything about like what is it. So what is the specific like just monitoring uh, policy behind WeChat? But like so far, if you're just doing like small amount, like it should be fine. So we're going to keep discussing regulation in a moment. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. Getting your blockchain app off the whiteboard and into production can be a big undertaking. From connecting user interfaces to integrating disparate systems and data, blockchain app development can be time-intensive and costly. Well, the folks at Azure have you covered. With a few simple clicks, the Azure Blockchain Workbench can create a blockchain network for you, pre-integrated with the cloud services needed to build your app. And with their new development kit, users can extend their app to ingest messages from bots, edge devices, databases, and more. It's free to download and gives you the tools you need to get your first app running in less than 30 minutes. To learn more about the dev kit and how to get started, visit aka.ms unchained or follow them on Twitter at msft blockchain. Issuing a digital security on the blockchain can be a significant undertaking particularly to ensure compliance requirements are met. Tokensoft's trusted platform provides security in a world of uncertainty by working with top legal and financial experts so that your digital assets are secure. 
TokenSoft leads the market in providing technological tools to support tax, banking, and securities regulations for issuers of digital assets. We are honored to have supported leading companies in 2018. To learn more about issuing digital securities successfully, visit tokensoft.io or follow them on Twitter at TokenSoft Inc. Within months, cryptocurrency anti-money laundering regulations go global. Are you ready? Avoid stiff penalties or blacklisting by deploying effective anti-money laundering tools for exchanges and crypto businesses, the same tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. Face it, regulations can stall or kill a fast-moving crypto business. New Financial Action Task Force and European Union cryptocurrency AML laws are coming soon. You could be hit with stiff fines or blacklisted, no matter where your servers are in the world. Prepare now. Deploy the same powerful CypherTrace tools used by regulators. Protect your assets, streamline your compliance programs, and keep your exchange or crypto business out of the regulator's crosshairs. Learn how effective anti-money laundering tools help keep your crypto business safe and trusted. Learn more at CypherTrace.com slash Unchained. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. Back to my conversation with Debbie and Eric of Primitive Ventures. So actually, before we keep going with this discussion about regulation, I did also want to ask you, because I do feel like your fund is kind of unique in the depth of your relationships in both the U.S. and in Asia. So I was curious how your connections in China have helped your U.S. investments. Yeah, I mean, so I think... uh there's been a couple of like interesting examples. Um, but one of the big ones is really just like Davi, uh, much more so than myself is, is super tied in with the miners in China. Um, and there's a lot of cases where, you know, us projects that are proof of work based will want to do something that would actually be disastrous for them from a mining perspective. Um, and so like recently, you know, Zcash has been discussing, uh, changing their mining rewards such that it's time locked so that the crypto that you get from mining is not immediately spendable, but it's sent to you over a long period of time. Uh, and Dovey was able to very quickly talk to a bunch of Chinese miners, ask them how they felt about that, and you know came back with the result that it's pretty likely that will be like a very strong centralizing force. And so whether Zcash does that or not, who knows, but you know they can get very quick feedback from us on what the actual look on the ground is. Um, there's been a bunch of other ones. like uh, you know we're, we're really excited about this project called Handshake. People can check it out. It's handshake.org. Um, but the, the general idea there is to have a DNS root zone replacement handled by a blockchain. And so you can do DNS routing um, of websites and then also of crypto if you want, uh, using these human-readable addresses. And those guys also had a proof-of-work issue where they initially were going to use an algorithm uh, that's the same algorithm that Grin was originally using called Cuckoo Cycle. And they decided to switch it to uh, you know an algorithm called SHA-3 in the hope that they would be very ASIC-friendly and that they would have lots of people building ASICs. Um, and we were able to give them some sort of inside info on like, you know, exactly how they should implement that to avoid having a Chinese company that has already made ASICs for that just be, you know, completely dominant in day one. So I think mining is a big picture, a big part of the picture. I think the other thing is like, we have really close ties to a lot of the exchanges. Um, and where that comes in is that like these exchanges, uh, every day get an overwhelming amount of contact from new crypto projects asking to be listed. And they actually have a really hard time distinguishing like what's a really truly solid project that they you know should just immediately list and that they shouldn't ask for a bunch of listing fees or anything weird like that, and then what's just kind of a marginal project. Um, and so what Devi and I, by virtue of the fact that, like I said, we're just like super super picky, 
we're able to go to you know, our exchange friends and say like, hey, look, we're, we're looking at this project. We think they're really awesome. You guys should look at them too. You know, here's the contact and we can, we can make those connections. So I think really the kind of the two of the biggest pictures are, are the mining and then also the exchange side of things. And then actually just to circle back to the regulatory thing, I wanted to ask you because you can see, and I, and I feel like this is affecting a lot of your investments, you can see how the regulatory climates differ across regions. How do you think that's affecting the development of crypto overall, like globally? Yeah, I mean, I think like what we're going to see and what we're beginning to see is there's going to be some jurisdiction that says, you know, this thing is extremely disruptive. And like I said, I truly believe crypto to be, I wouldn't, I think maybe anti-government is too strong of a word to use. I think it's something that like massively empowers individuals over governments. And so it's kind of a scary thing for any government in the world to be like, yeah, we're totally on board with this. Um, but I think what you're going to see is there will be some jurisdictions. And I think Singapore is a good candidate for that. I think, um, you know, Malta is, is doing some stuff in this department and even some states within the U.S., like Wyoming has been extremely positive is going to, they're going to see that, you know, having this infrastructure that's going to be, processing billions and billions of dollars of transactions is actually going to be something really valuable for them from a job creation perspective, from a financial perspective. And so they're going to start getting on board with that. Um, and that's actually, that's why I guess I have a lot of friends, uh, like Naval Ravikant is someone who has this opinion and, and I don't agree with this opinion. And the opinion is they're very, very worried that like governments are just going to unite and shut down crypto. And I think, you know, it's a legitimate concern, but why I'm less worried about it is I think there's this really interesting game theory where like, if every other government is like, yeah, we hate crypto, then there's a high incentive for some government to say, no, no, we love crypto, come here, uh, and, you know, pay our taxes on your incredible returns. And so, you know, Binance made uh, more money than Deutsche Bank in Q1. Uh, and Binance has 200 employees. And I think Deutsche Bank has something like 100,000. So we're talking about very significant sums of money. Um, and I think that's going to end up being very enticing to some governments. Yeah, so- yeah I, I've already seen that happening. Like, uh, yeah, the likelihood, I think, that all the governments unite in one viewpoint on crypto is so low. <laughs> but anyway, Debbie, what were you going to say? Right. So because I think, like, first of all, um, like the modern politician and so I think, like, like their job is not to form consensus, right? Um, so it's, so it's almost impossible, f- like, for, like, all these, like, major politicians, like, so to form a consensus, like, to shut things down and, like, unless it's about, like, life and death. And so, like, that's what we have seen about, like, World War II, about financial crisis, um, last time. And, but I think, like, crypto, like, nowadays, and so it's just, like, not big enough for them to, like, think about, um, like, forming consensus as, like, one entity. And then, so, like, the other very interesting game theory is, um, I think, like, right now, U.S. and China are in a very, um, interesting historical moment. And, um, because I, like, both in China and, like, US, and we have this, like, very strong mighty leader. And so, uh, because of, so because of them, and so they're, um, so, like, the strong mighty leader leads to political tension. And so when it comes to political tension and anything that China bans, and US will, so I think, like, US <laughs> will probably never ban it. And so, like, that's also, yep. like, a very interesting game theory that can actually keep crypto survive. Um, and mm. then, so, like, that's actually, like, the tier one, uh, like, solvent states, right? And so, when it comes to tier two, like, Singapore, Japan, Korea, and so, they're actually moving very fast on, like, clarifying regulatory playbook and license qualifications, stuff like that, because like, they have very strong incentive, like, to facilitate the whole industry and, like, see it as, like, a great opportunity when U.S. and China are in this, like, power struggle. Um, hmm. So... And then, and then, so because I'm currently actually in Singapore right now, 
And so I live in a building and uh, which is very interesting that, um, uh, so three other very influential crypto entrepreneur, like back in China. So they all relocate to Singapore. And so we literally <laughs> just uh, live in the same building here. Um, <laughs> I, right. So I think like that's like one, a very major phenomena that, um, many of these like Chinese entrepreneurs, so they're willing to, to, you know, like give up what they have back in China and like move out to a state that's like more friendly and just like start everything all over. And I think like the survivability and just like sustainability of this like, Asian entrepreneur are just amazing. It's like just like cockroach level survivability. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like definitely. Yeah. So I think like that's my point on um, like regulation in general. All right. So let's move on to something that's been on everyone's minds recently, which is mining. How has uh-huh. this crypto winter affected the miners? So, okay. When it comes to mining, because, um, like one thing we have to understand is, um, for, so just like for all the POW mining, just like proof of work, right? So when like all the POW mining and so they have, so like they have one thing that's difficulty adjustment. So when it comes to difficulty adjustment, which means like the difficulty is actually like a trailing indicator of the price. So, when the Bitcoin price crash, um, so like the, so the Bitcoin difficulty level is not going to adjust immediately. So it's always lag. So like, which means like, like all the miner has to keep the same level of like hash power in order to, so in order to like keep producing the block. And so like, that's why a lot of like miners and like who are, um, not very efficient or like who are not on a very good like unit of, uh, so, who are not on a very good unit economic. So they will, so they will actually be like washed out because like if your like blood reward cannot cover your uh, marginal operational costs and basically it's like, so basically designed by the economic as a miner. And then, so you are not going to mine because uh, you will be losing money. And so there's a lot of, um, this side uh, turning off of the machine or just like, just like have the machine sell. So like have to, so like, or probably just, uh, sell the machine at like a deep discount to some miner that can be more efficient. So that has happened in the last couple of months. And I think like, like, so we can actually see everything reflected on the total hash rate. So like if a lot of miners turning off their machine, and so we will see like a hit on the hash rate as well. So I remember our hash rate right now is about um, like 40-ish. And so that's at least, um, so like from the peak, it was about um, 30 to 40% dropped. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and just to explain it for people who maybe aren't super familiar when Debbie was talking about the difficulty, essentially the more computer power that there is on the network, the harder it is to find a block, like the more electricity that you need to put into it, the harder the math problem gets. And that's because they want this software was designed so that there would be a new block found roughly every 10 minutes. But of course, if you have more people and more computer power on it, then you would just find them more quickly, right? So instead, the difficulty will Mm -hmm. adjust to make it more difficult. But what Debbie's saying is the reverse has been happening where the difficulty is dropping, but it only adjusts every two weeks. And so during this period where the price has dropped, there are a lot of people who cannot keep paying the same electricity to try to find the block rewards or to find the final 
to find the blocks to get the rewards. And so those people are just having to quit and um, maybe sell their miners. So do you think, because as far as I understand, I think also that whole cycle hurts Bitcoin in a different way, which is that many of those miners may also sell their Bitcoin reserves, which then further drives down the price. Or do you know if that's happening? Um, I think like that has happening. So like that has been happening for a while. And because I, for like every model of the machine. And so, uh, let's say if you're, uh, probably mining with the best machine from like Bitman, like S9. And so like S9 has like a certain level of like price point that can like break even. Um, so if you hit the break even point and so you have to sell. So you have to sell the quant that you have mine and just like to uh, cover your operational expenses. Um, so like every model of the machine has like a different break even price. And so like the better of your machine is and like the lower the like break even prices. And so like that's why we have seen a lot of this like um, relatively um, like outdated model, like say for instance, some early model from like Avalon, like and like a, and, and then probably from Bitman as well. So many of them uh, cannot just like cannot sustain. And so for like many of them, um, anything under 4,000, so it's actually hitting their breaking even point. And so like that's why they have to just like keep selling or otherwise just like stop completely. Wow. So I'm glad that you mentioned Bitmain because they've been in the news. Apparently they're undergoing layoffs and potentially on a, a really large scale with rumors of the layoffs uh, hitting more than 50% of staff. And this mm-hmm. comes in this period after they filed to have an initial public offering. So can you tell us what you know about the layoffs? Like, do you know how many people it is, which departments, like any details you have there? So so before we get into the Bitmain stuff, I just want to add one thing about the mining issue, which is it's been kind of interesting to see that, like, despite all of the negative stuff that, that David just went over, which is all totally true, the coin has kind of just kept on chugging. And so there's, there's there was this theory that, like, you know, what Dovey described with the difficulty adjustment and also selling of reserves that you would end up with something uh, called a mining death spiral, where like as more and more miners abandon the chain, uh, the difficulty level adjustment happens too slowly and so no one can mine. And so even less miners mine and it ends up just completely halting the chain. Um, and we haven't seen that happen. Uh, and in fact, we've actually seen the difficulty level start going back up. So the difficulty level hit like a low, I want to say in uh, early December, and then it's it's been climbing ever since. And it's... Uh, you know, the, the new difficulty adjustment that hit uh, around December 31st was an upward one. Um, so it seems like Bitcoin is actually pretty resilient even to these really extreme price drops coupled with, you know, crazy regulatory action and a bunch of strife for miners. Um, and so I think in the long term, it's actually pretty exciting for Bitcoin. It's just kind of like yet another thing that was supposed to kill Bitcoin and didn't. Yeah, it's things like that that remind me of how when I was first learning about it, and I just, I just felt like learning about Bitcoin was just blowing my mind in so many ways. And even all these years later, when I realized that it it works, I'm just like, wow, like, that's kind of amazing that they figure that out. Um, I just feel like it's the longest game of, I I don't know, just like something where you have to keep like a balloon afloat in the air or whatever, like it just keeps going. And it's kind of incredible. Yeah, no, no, no. I forget forget who said it. But there was there was some great quote about like, Bitcoin is the only thing that that works better (laughs) in practice than in theory. Um, <laughs> yep. I love that. That's super like funny. It's, yeah. that's great. So, so but yeah, no, but anyway, back, back to Bitmain because that's really interesting. Yeah, 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 that is so interesting. What's going on there? 
Um, yeah, so like all the things I know, so that's actually not confirmed officially by like Bitmain. And, um, but like we have like, so because like the local, like the local community is just so small. And so we have pretty much like know everything, like even like before any of, so even before any official thing came out. So from like what I have heard, um, so the laid off is like definitely more than 50%. And I think it's probably hitting like 70%. Um, like just. Yeah, so like just to uh, let you know about the total, um, like, like the total employee number of like Bitmain, like before the layoff. And so it's somewhere around 3,000. So it's a huge company. And because I based on their IPO filing, I remember, um, it is around 2,500 ish, um, just based on the, um, IPO filing. And so they have been hiring like crazy, like even afterwards, um, uh, for like a few months. And so that's why before the layoff is around 3,000. And, um, so from what, so from what I heard is, um, like their like Beijing office, like which is their headquarters. So it's going to be cut to 300 from, over a thousand and so they have oh like a God. shenzhen office so they have like a shenzhen office and it's so i think shenzhen office is going to cut from um like 800 to like 200 so like one specific department that's been hitting really hard up so probably two one is the bch client department and like the other one is um like the ai department and like the mining department it has like two sub office and one is the mining pool and I think like that has been reorganized to, um, somewhere to like 20 to 30. And so the other office is the self mining, like basically like the whole mining farm. And so that's something that I'm not clear yet. Uh, but I, what I heard is like they have like a major reconstruction of the whole, um, like self mining facility thing. And so I've heard rumor that so they might be spinning out, uh, because like one problem with their like current, uh, IC, so, uh, uh, with their IPO accounting is um, suicide majority of their like mining income is very hard to put into this like, regular accounting um, so regular accounting mechanism and like Bitmain has been investing quite a bit in like so in uh, mining facility and like just an like, international mining farm in like Canada and in, in like all over the world and so I have heard rumors saying that like, that they might be spinning out and but I'm not sure yet. And um, but like definitely the uh Bitcoin Cash client team and then also the AI chip team uh has been hit really bad. And when you say Bitcoin Cash client, you mean the software that's used it to, uh, to so run like, Bitcoin Cash? Yeah, so like 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 client side is um like the I think like the protocol team is okay. Um uh, but like anything on top of that protocol, like say for instance, like Bitcoin Cash wallet, like Bitcoin Cash um API and just anything on top of that. And so they have like a separate team for that. And so that has been hit really bad. Do yeah. you think it's their ideological shift to Bitcoin Cash that has caused these problems? Um I think like that's definitely one of the reason, um, because I know like Jehan, uh, just, uh, like Jehan bet on Bitcoin Cash, uh, like heavily just, uh, after the, like after the initial like hard fork. And I, so I remember they have spent over like 2.5 billion just in buying Bitcoin Cash. Um, so like after the first like hard fork. And so they have acquired a lot of like Bitcoin Cash, uh, from, their Bitcoin position. And, um, but like they have been just like keep buying more like Bitcoin cash. And so that's around 2.5 billion US dollar. And so I think like they are really ambitious on just 
uh, pushing out Bitcoin Cash and on payment on on like pretty much everything. Smart contract. Yeah, because they payment. were taking yeah. payment for their miners in Bitcoin Cash, right? Like you could only buy yeah. the mining equipment. Yeah. Yeah. So they yeah. must have a huge amount of it, and yep. I'm sure the price of that is is down. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, so one one thing that I, I thought was kind of interesting is like when, when they were doing this IPO, uh, I asked some of my Chinese like PE friends what they thought of it. And they had read through the docs that got leaked. And they were all like really shocked by the amount of Bitcoin cash on the balance sheet. Um, and I'm, I mean, like, I do I do exclusively early stage investment, so I don't really know much about this stuff. And so I couldn't I couldn't have like a really solid take on like whether this is normal or not. And their take was that it was insane. Um, and that it represented a massive risk to the company. And it seems like that that's played out that like, you know, holding that much Bitcoin on the balance sheet would be scary for a lot of these traditional investors. And so when they see someone holding this, you know, alternative asset that hasn't even proved itself uh, in, in an enormous, like very relevant to the company amount, uh, I think that was really scary. And I think they were right to be scared. If you look now, it's, it's really hasn't turned out well for them. Yeah, and according to one report, the regulators in Hong Kong, which is where Bitmain filed to IPO, they've indicated that they think it's too early for any crypto company to go public. So do you think, I mean, it just feels like if they cannot get this cash injection that they were expecting from going public, what do you think the prospects are for Bitmain? Yeah, so uh, because I whenever like any just like bear market or just like any like nuclear winter, and I think only the top player are gonna survive, and like even Big Man has burned a lot of cash, and uh, but I think they still have like decent bank role, and like especially especially uh, after this like uh, massive layoff, and I think like they, so I think they will have a decent control on their like operational expenses and just like. Uh, general expansion plan um i think like bitman should be fine because like they are the biggest like asic maker out there like they're like the biggest miner out there and so as long as like they stay as the biggest one so they should be okay yeah yeah i mean so yeah, i would maybe. i would bet against i would bet against bitman like disappearing as a result of this but i think it's a massive setback for them and i think it opens up uh competition where they have there's a lot of like technical teams in china that are competing with bitman and in some cases, I think they actually have a stronger technical team than Bitmain. But what they don't have is what W was mentioning, like the massive economies of scale with, you know, foundries like TSMC and all the supply chain stuff and all the shipping stuff. Um, but I think at the point where Bitmain faces this huge setback in terms of their cash flow and in terms of their asset balance sheet, it opens up, you know, a space for someone new to come in. And I think that's actually something I really love about proof of work, where it's this extremely chaotic, uh, extremely tied to the real world ecosystem and it becomes very hard for anyone to be a monopolistic power for too long. Like you just make one misstep and, and now you're out and now someone else has taken over. Um, and I think that's really valuable for the chain itself. Yeah. Yeah. I just going back to Duffy's comments, I just realized after I asked that about Bitmain that maybe one of the reasons that they are doing these massive layoffs is because they kind of get the, the you know they've taken the temperature and realized that maybe they won't get their IPO and so this is their way of saving themselves. So I also want to ask something else about uh, the Chinese government, which is I read this other report saying that the Chinese government wants to get Bitcoin miners to exit China. Oh, sorry, yeah, or get Bitcoin miners in China to exit the industry. So do you know if that's true? And if so, do you know if miners are complying? Yeah. So as far as I know, uh, I don't think so. Like, there's still a lot of 
like just like mining operation and so both like legally just like both legal one and um illegal one and so i think they're still operating okay like the right now's problem is like not from the government so it's like more about the um just like economy in general because uh like the hydropower just like the hydroelectricity cost is actually not so it's actually so it's actually not that low back in China. And many of these like, Chinese miners are going to Russia, going to Ukraine, like, um, going to um, like the other part of the world and to find some like cheap electricity, like to further run so to further run their operation. I think it's more economic driven, but like not like government driven. Yeah, no, I, t- I totally agree with that. I think also the other, like like everything, I mean, it's so much more nuanced than the general media reports. So like, there's not, in China, there's not like a ban on mining. What there is, is if you're on the national electricity grid, um, they don't want you mining. However, a lot of miners have their own electricity. I mean, so we know some folks that used to be uh, gold miners, and they have their own hydropower and their own coal power that they were using to power a gold mining operation. And they now switched like half of that over to mining Bitcoin. Um, and the government doesn't, probably doesn't even know about that and certainly doesn't care about it. Um, and so you see like, you know, when people say the Chinese government, I think very rarely is that an accurate phrase. And what they mean is like, you know, the province of Hunan's government or like, <laughs> you know, the central government or whatever, but it's, it's not a really a monolithic organization. And there's, there's this great phrase in Chinese, um, Shan Gao Huang Di Yuan. It's like, <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the mountains are hot, the mountains are tall and the emperor is far away. And so like in lots of places in China, like, what the central government says is not necessarily what's going to happen immediately. Um, and I definitely like, I don't think there is some like big, I don't think there's some like big push from the government to get rid of my And uh, because just like checking on my recent conversation with one of my big minor friend. And, um, and so like, he's actually considering like buying some major den, just some buying the den out there and then just to produce like his, so like his own, um, hydro, so hydroelectricity. So I, so I definitely don't think that people are like moving out because of like government ban. Yeah. Okay. Well, cause yeah, I mean, I guess, so I, you know, like I said, I saw that report that they were trying to do that. And in general, I feel like in the West, we have this conception that everything is extremely top down over there and that when the government wants to do something, they can do it you know, just like, oh man, I was going to use a very unfortunate phrase. I was going to say they could steamroll over people to do that, but let's not think about that. (laughs) Um, So, but one other reason that I thought maybe they might have a motivation to do that is there's been this talk of a crypto yuan. Do you have any sense of how much of that is just talk and how much of that is like an actual intention of the government? So like, first of all, uh, PBOC, just the People's Bank of China. And so that is like the Fed of, um, like the Fed equivalent. And they have been, so because I have chat with some of their like insider there. And so they're actually extremely knowledgeable about like everything on crypto and all mm-hmm. the way from protocol to like monetary policy to everything. And so I think if they really want to roll it out and so they can probably do it tomorrow. And so it is like not about feasibility. It is like more about timing and about application and about, you know, like overall sentiment, et cetera. Um, so I'm not sure like, like at what specific timing that like they will make a decision, but I think they have the full capability there to do it. And like the Yuan and so. I remember like the PBOC, like there's like, so they have like a research team. So 
they actually recently published like a paper, like talking about blockchain. And so like, that's one of the most insightful paper that I have seen like published by any Chinese player. And then hmm. one of the, so like, uh, one of the author of that paper right now is actually the chief economist of Bitmain. Um, so I think hmm. he joined, I, I think like he joined Bitmain after he published that paper. And then like also like there's one company and back in China and, um, so invested by Sequoia China, I remember. And, and I think also China Merchant Bank. And so they have been this like PBOC in-house, um, blockchain engineering team. And so like the founder used to be, uh, working for Ethereum Foundation. Um, so I think like the technical capability is, so it's like definitely there. So it's like more about, uh, like what are the specific application and like how to synthesize the whole infrastructure because like the whole banking infrastructure back in China is kind of, um, chaos. Um, so it's like pretty chaotic that, um, like say for instance, if you, so if you have saving on one, um, say for instance, like China Merchant Bank and so China Merchant Bank does not share the database with, uh, so with the China Construction Bank. So I think there's a lot of this like data synchronization problem that they have to figure out, like before they can roll out like the whole, um, just a digital cash or just a digital yuan. Um, but, but, but like just like purely from like cryptocurrency perspective, like, uh, I think their talents and like just like competence. Um, so it's like definitely at a pretty high level. Hmm. So we're running out of time, but I just want to ask you guys one last question, which is I know that there are a lot of people in the Western crypto community who say that one motivation that Chinese citizens could have to use Bitcoin is to escape the surveillance state and things like the social credit system and whatever. How much do you think that motivates actual Chinese people like who, you know, who use Bitcoin or trade Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies? Not at all. I think it's, yeah. So like nobody actually like care about that credit system at all. Uh, Like first off, like just uh, first of all, and just that people will not associate uh, cryptocurrency with that thing. And then people will only associate. And also that that, that whole, that whole thing is like such an overblown, like fake, it's almost like a fake news story. (laughs) Like the the Western, Western media loves reporting on this credit system. And like no one I know in China even like knows what it is. Or if they do, it's like, it's not, it's not very well integrated. Most people don't use it. It doesn't touch most people's lives, but it's just like really scary dystopian sounding thing. Um, but but wait, when you say it doesn't touch most people's lives, like, I mean, like you, you must know, for instance, if somebody goes missing, one of the first things, uh, investigators do is they look at their financial transactions to try to Mm -hmm. figure out what they've been doing, where they've been, stuff like that. And so in, in China, where so much, uh, financial transactions happen in this cashless way on these apps that are surveilled by the state, like, don't you think people have an awareness? Oh, that no, the no, government sorry. Is- so, 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 so to clarify, what I'm saying is, is the, the, the Sesame credit, social credit score thing is an overblown story that basically doesn't exist. I mean, it exists, but it's just not a big deal. Uh, the surveillance state stuff you're talking about is totally real and totally exists and definitely does touch people's lives. I, I, I would like those two things are totally distinct. Um, but, but I would say but like in China, saying people, that Chinese people aren't motivated to use Bitcoin for that reason. Like they don't, connect the two no that's, yeah yeah they're not and and it's, yeah. it's just i mean they're not a they're not that worried about the surveillance um and b and i mean I, I would say from a factual perspective bitcoin doesn't get you doesn't get you much in that regard well, yeah bitcoin actually is it not should be like monero currency. or cash <laughs> it would be a bad right, right, right. Use and I think, bitcoin <laughs> but even but even i mean even even those things like i think 
crypto is pretty far from being a really robust payments layer. Um, so actually, like Devi and I chatted with the folks who run WeChat's or like run Tencent's fund, and and one of the figures I was super curious about is like what's the what's the TPS? You know, the transactions per second that WeChat sees. Um, and I think like we we're asked not to share the numbers, but it's it's insane. Like the the, the amount of transaction volume that something like WeChat sees, especially during peak times, is like mind blowing. Um, and there's no crypto system as of yet that's getting even close to that. I mean, the only the guys that that I've seen that kind of have the closest chance of being an actual payment system are the mobile coin folks, and and you know that'll be something where like it'll work as a payments network. If if everyone in China adopted it tomorrow, though, it would, it would collapse like all the other ones. And so yeah. I think this idea that like people in China are you know jumping on crypto as a as a payments thing or as like a way to avoid financial surveillance is pretty misguided but i do yeah. think what they are using it for is to avoid capital controls and that's that's the yeah. big one I think like so, uh, so there are like, pr- two primary purposes of like using crypto. One is as an um, investment asset. Uh, people want to get rich, like simply asset. And then like second is just like moving capital out, just like uh, moving RMB asset into crypto asset, and then like further transfer to probably US dollar asset. So like these are the two primary purposes that we have seen. Like Chinese mm-hmm. people are using crypto. Yeah, right. and I think well, I think so. I mean, I know we're, we're running out of time, but I think sort of one one thing that I think it's really important to understand, just from a sort of fundamental perspective about crypto, and I think it really informs Davi and my perspective on what's happening in China, is that like all of these systems have to first function as a store of value before they can start functioning as a unit of account or as a medium of exchange. And so I think Bitcoin has done very well at becoming this sort of store of value use case. Um, and we're seeing that, you know, where well, a store of value doesn't mean you never transact. It means, you know, you're not buying coffee with this thing, but if you want to move a lot of money offshore to go buy a house in, in America or something, you would use it. Um, and I think we're going to start seeing sort of the medium of exchange use case come about in like, you know, mid 2019, early 2020, when projects like mobile coin ship, I think Stellar is looking into stuff like this. Um, and I think we're going to start seeing that, but I think right now that's just, it's not the reality on the ground. And so as a result, it's not how people, how people use these systems in China or anywhere. Oh, all right. Well, this has been an incredibly fascinating discussion. I had a whole bunch more questions for you. I think maybe I will um, see if you guys can just write a few answers for me by email for those additional questions, and I'll put them on my website for people to listen to um, or to, to read. <laughs> I'm so like when I started doing the podcast, I would often talk about the readers and then I have to be like the listeners. And now I've like switched the other way. (laughs) But anyway, um, so yeah, like I said, this has been such a great discussion. Where can people learn more about you guys and Primitive Ventures? Um, So we have uh, primitive.ventures for the the fund. There's not a lot of information there, but there's contact info if anyone wants to say hi. Um, And then Dovey and I are both pretty active on Twitter. So I'm Wheat Pond on Twitter, W H E A T P O N D, and uh, W W you're W Wan, right? Yeah, just like just just my first name and my last name. Okay, great. Well, thank you both for coming on Unchained. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for having us, Laura. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Eric and Duffy, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. New episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, I highly recommend you check it out and subscribe now. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylan Gallipoli, Fractal Recording, Corin Fife, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.